It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Have you wondered how similar and how different early Christian beliefs and the organization of the early Christian church was compared with various Christian denominations today? How similar were the early Christians to the Catholics, to the Protestants, to the Orthodox faith, and to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? It's obvious to anybody who thinks about this that there are going to be great overlaps. After all, Christian churches have as their focus a belief in Jesus as the Christ. That's going to be the same in early Christianity or in any of the denominations today. But when you get down into some of the details about organizations, there are some interesting differences, even in the LDS church. One of the most fascinating things about the organization of the early Christian church is that it had apostles, bishops, certainly, elders, evangelists, who we would call 70s, and deacons. You won't find prophets as part of the formal organization of the early Christian church. Take a look at the New Testament, and you don't see the apostles reporting to a prophet. That is a fascinating difference and distinction. In Latter-day Saint belief today, a prophet occupies somewhat the position, at least in terms of organization, that Jesus would have occupied while he was alive. So that is a bit of a difference, even though there are great similarities. One of the other things that you will find in the early Christian church is the idea of priesthood. The idea of priesthood, in other words, authority from God, and the idea of an organization of priesthood where people are called by the laying on of hands rather than just declaring themselves to be a minister or believer in God is one of the main hallmarks of early Christianity. You do not find this in Protestant faiths. Protestants believe in a priesthood of all believers, which is an organization of Christianity or a way Christianity was organized, rather, that is not found in the early Christian church. The early Christian church says in many, many different places that its members, its apostles, and the others who were leading the various congregations were called by the laying on of hands. This 
is a big distinction. Now, the Catholic faith also has this. They have a very formal organization of priesthood. Here's something else that when we look directly at Latter-day Saints might be a little bit of a distinction. We already mentioned that prophets weren't part of the formal organization. You didn't have a first presidency, although people would say Peter, James, and John might be the equivalent. There were no area presidents. There were no stake presidents, high councils. Bishops are the same. There was no Relief Society, but there were certainly priesthood groups. A Sunday school? Well, maybe, but we don't really know that. There weren't young women's and young men's and primary organizations. So the reason these seem to be different is because the church today is so much larger. And another comment is that when you have the basic and important parts of the organization of a church, some of the differences are ministerial. There is no question that the full organization of the early Christian church was not found everywhere that you had a little branch of Christianity. For example, in the early days in Galatia, in Philippi, in a number of different places, uh, you just didn't have a full organization of, of the church. Let's go on to some of the other ideas and doctrines and belief of early Christianity. A number of places in the New Testament you find that people were who were sick were anointed with oil. In James chapter 5 verses 14 through 16, you have this phrase, quote, is anyone sick among you? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then it goes on to say that the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, this is a little bit of a distinction. We don't often find someone who blesses the sick who in a prayer, asks for remission of sins. That seems to be a focus of the sacrament and baptism for us. Apparently, that was also part of anointing with oil, at least in some circumstances. One of the other questions that comes up is, how does one join the church? In the earliest days of Christianity, we know that John the Baptist baptized people, but was there a general requirement that people joining the church be baptized? The answer to that is that it was. And it wasn't just sprinkling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul references water baptism as washing. He also talks about being purified. In Hebrews, we have this idea of hearts being sprinkled, but the body being washed or baptized with pure water. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Now, that's different by implication than just a sprinkling. The physical body was symbolically washed, and it appears to have been done by immersion. The idea of sprinkling as a substitute happened over time, and it was done for very noble reasons. It was done because if someone was sick, so sick perhaps, that they couldn't even get to a place or live through a baptism, it was thought, oh, that person shouldn't be deprived of salvation, so they would put water on their head or pour water on their head or sprinkle water on their head and baptize them at the same time. The idea was that that might do it. But that's a later development. That's not the way the early Christian church worked. The baptism that was done in early Christianity looks very much like the way it happens in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in Catholic and Protestant faiths when they practice baptism by immersion. One of the most fascinating experiences I ever had of interviewing someone was about 25 years ago, give or take. I I should go back and pull out the exact date, but I, I didn't take time to do that this year. But it was in the late 1990s. I interviewed a Presbyterian minister from Texas, a gentleman who I quite enjoyed interviewing. He, he was just a wonderful man. His name was David Berceau, uh, probably still is. I have no reason to believe that, that he has deceased or anything. But he had done something in much more depth than the way I had done it. What am I talking about? The anti-Nicene fathers, the Nicene fathers, and post-Nicene fathers. Many of you will have no idea what that is. I will tell you on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. When we took our break, I was talking about the anti Nicene Fathers, the Nicene Fathers, and post Nicene Fathers. Incidentally, if you have a question or comment about this program, send me an email. I'm caught up or very, very close to caught up, feel free to send me an email to martinstanner at gmail.com and I'll be happy to respond. The anti-Nicene fathers, Nicene fathers and post-Nicene fathers are virtually, and I say virtually because there are a few documents that, that are not contained therein, but it's a 36-volume set of books that... I purchased about 30 years ago, and it contains virtually all of the writings of the early Christian church leaders, early Christian church fathers. And it's fascinating because it has some great details in it about early Christian beliefs and actions and the organization of the Christian church and about how 
salvation was viewed and what was the gospel and many, many other similar kinds of information are found in there. Now, Pastor Berceau, who I mentioned earlier, had been a minister, an ordained minister, and he had read in great detail the anti-Nicene and Nicene Fathers, and to a certain extent, the post-Nicene Fathers as well. And he, and that's 36 volumes, that takes an awful lot of work, and he cataloged and extracted quotes that he thought were of great benefit to understand history, doctrine, beliefs, organization of the early Christian church. And so I interviewed him on the radio for several hours, and it was a wonderful conversation. And I can give you some of the highlights. One of the first things that I mentioned was what is the nature of salvation in early Christianity? Did one believe and they were saved, or did it take action? Did it take works? Pause. Well, Martin, you might be surprised to learn that in the early Christian church, it was believed that it took more than just belief. It was imperative that someone act according to the commandments before they could be saved. Now, I know this is a shock to a lot of people, but I, I, and it was a surprise to me, but that's, that's exactly what was believed by the early Christians. They say it over and over again. Uh, and, and here are some of the quotes that he actually gave. This is... Um, from Clement of Alexandria, quote, It is the will of God that he who repents of his sins and is obedient to the commandments should be saved, close quote. Clement of Alexandria, uh, he lived in about 195 A.D. Here, here's another fascinating one. Quote, It is well-pleasing to him that we should be saved, and salvation is effected through both well-doing and knowledge, close quote. This is by Clement of Alexandria again. And here's, here's another quote. Those who believe God and follow his word receive that salvation that flows from him. And another one, quote, each man goes to everlasting punishment or salvation according to the value of his Actions. That's by Justin, early church leader, 160. Another one, quote, the matters of our religion lie in works, not in words. Again, Justin Martyr. And I could go on and make dozens and dozens and dozens of quotes, and those are the ones that Pastor Berceau had found, from which he said, yeah, salvation is dependent on works. And that's what Jesus was telling people. And the early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. And the way was early Christianity. That was the early Christian church, the title of it. And it meant works. In other words, living a life the way 
Jesus had lived. Another one that I mentioned was after that, after how being saved, I said, Pastor Rousseau, what does it actually mean to be saved? Once you've merited salvation, what does that mean? Do you go to heaven and sit on clouds and eat grapes or what what does that actually mean? And he said, well, you might be surprised, but what that means is and, – and he, and he said it as if this would be something that I would protest. He said, it means that we can become like God. He said over and over, the early Christian church fathers and even in the New Testament, the way they read and understood the New Testament, the apostles and early church fathers said that we could be partakers of the divine nature and that that meant we could literally be like God and Jesus. Now, I know that that sounds like heresy, Martin, that the, that people could become gods, you know, with a small g instead of a big g, like God the Father and Jesus. But But that's what the early Christians actually believed. They believed that we could become deified. And I found that fascinating. I said, no, no, I guess that doesn't really surprise me too much. And then we moved on to another subject. And that other subject was about scriptures. And I said, what did the early Christians believe about scriptures? And he said, well, they had a lot of scriptures. And there was no single list until the fourth century. And before then, some of the most revered books we no longer have in the Bible or no longer has have as a collection that's that's part of revered scriptures. And and he was right. There there's certainly no book that was comprised of, you know, the twenty some odd books in the New Testament, and you can add different numbers to that, uh, depending on whether you add the Shepherd of Hermas, which we have in some early Christian manuscripts, or the Gospel of Barnabas or others. However, one of the things we can say is there were many, many different scriptures that, many, many different books as well as scriptures that were not part of the Bible after the 3rd and 4th century. And I asked him why. And he said, well, because there was infighting. There were heretics, at least perceived heretics. And the only way to get rid of them was to have some collection of books or beliefs that excluded these people. And so books that were previously accepted, like The Shepherd of Hermas and some of these others, were excluded. Some of the books that were found to be with disfavor would be Book of James, Book of Jude, the Book of Revelation, because they talk about works, especially the Book of Revelation does, uh, James does as well, talks about the books being opened, the Book of Life, and people were judged according to their works of what was written in that book. So the more I listen to Pastor Verso, the more I reaffirmed the things that I'd been reading by myself in the 
anti-Nicene Fathers, Nicene Fathers, and post-Nicene Fathers series that when you get right down to it, the closest denomination to early Christianity is the beliefs and organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is it exactly the same? No, but the beliefs are very, very close. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.